stand and take our Bibles, please. New Testament, the book of Acts, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, book of Acts chapter 4. If you uh, look around, if your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, specifically a King James Version translation, please share your Bible with them. And uh, if they don't have a Bible, just share your Bible with them. We want you to be right in the Scriptures today. And predominantly, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 this morning. Say amen if you're there. All right, Acts chapter 4. When they had prayed, the place, i tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to read the odd number of verses. I want you to read the even number. We're a little bit slow this morning, so I'm going to have you read the even number of verses just so I know you're awake. Amen? Okay, I'm going to start with the odd, and you read the even. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Congregation, and the multitude were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Listen to this. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Congregation, neither. And laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Congregation and Joseph. <laughs> having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What you notice that two key words we find in verse 33. Those two words are great grace. This morning we're continuing our series on faithful stewardship and giving. And it reminded of a story of a pastor who was sitting in his office preparing for a message and the telephone rang. It was a small church. He didn't have a receptionist and didn't have voicemail or anything like that. The pastor picked up the phone and said, hello, this is Heritage Baptist Church. And the voice of the other end said, are you the pastor of this church? He said, yes, sir. He said, well, this is the IRS. Can you help us? And what would you do if the IRS called? And the pastor says, sure, I can. And the voice on the other line from the IRS says, do you know Brother So-and-so was a member of the church? And he said, I do. The IRS agent said, is he a member of your congregation? He said, yes, he is. And the IRS agent asked, did he donate $10,000 to the church? The pastor had a smile on his face. He said, he will. He will. <laughs> God has a way of catching up with us, doesn't he? That's our prayer this morning. That God, through his great grace, work in our hearts, that our attitude will be, I will. Lord, I will. Father, thank you this morning that you love us. Thank you today for the sun that's breaking out, a sunshine morning. Thank you, God, for the time change. I know we feel a little bit sleep-deprived. But, Father, we thank you that we get more daylight and more opportunities to serve you. And, Lord, as we assemble here today, we just ask that the Holy Spirit, who we're speaking about today, will have great liberty to work in our hearts. Father, we pray that you'd open our eyes, behold wonderful things out of your law. We pray, God, this morning that you enlighten us. We pray that, God, you help us understand truths and doctrines that are for our blessing and success 
And so, God, that you can be honored. We pray this morning that in all of our heart of hearts that you'll be glorified and magnified. Now, Father, we have many in our church today that are not, not here because they're sick with the flu. So many folks that are sick and ill. And God, in a special way, please touch your bodies with healing and recovery and wellness. And perhaps some even here in the congregation are not feeling at the best, probably up to par as well. We pray you touch your bodies with healing and wellness. And of course, Lord, there are many out, outside of our church who, God, just have special trials and difficulties. Some here this morning whose hearts are heavy and burdened. And we're just asking, God, that you would touch them and, and help them and be the God of all comfort for their lives. Bless this service today. I pray in a special way as we're looking at a subject that requires our obedience obedience and requires our submission and requires God attention. We pray that we be, we give attention to them. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We started last Sunday morning, went to Sunday night. We'll finish up tonight a four-part series on faithful stewardship. And I'm just going to give you a really quick recap on that. Stewardship refers to the responsibility a person has with the assets and resources entrusted to him. Whatever those assets and resources God has given to us, he's given it to us to manage and to grow. A lot of times I hear people mistakenly think the stewardship says I'm supposed to be a good manager. But if you study very carefully the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, that landowner who entrusted some talents to three of his servants required them to give him a good return on investment for what he gave them. God wants us to understand this morning that uh, we are managers of somebody else's assets, and that's God's assets and God's resources. The word steward is found 18 times in the Bible, 12 times specifically in the New Testament. We read over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that it's accounted unto a steward that he be found faithful. Now, faithful is a good word. Faithful is important. You need faithfulness in your marriage. You need faithfulness in your stewardship. We need to be faithful in what we're doing. We need to be faithful in our jobs. The Bible says stewards should be found faithful. That means every single thing given to us, we can give an account for that down to the very penny. It can show that we made a good account of our day and our time. I watch, I work very carefully on my time during the week. Every, every Sunday evening and Monday morning, I spent a good hour working on my schedule for weeks, on, weeks ahead and planning things out and thinking about that week and where I've got pockets of time I'm going to fill out. I want to make sure I don't have wasted moments. I try to make sure I've got, if I'm going to be traveling, I've got, I've got my reading time scheduled in there, memorization time scheduled there. I want to make sure I've made time for prayer. I've made time for my family. I've made time for all the things you need to do. And if you understand how busy we are, if you don't plan, it doesn't get done. And so as a steward, we must be found faithful. Notice something else. Stewards are expected, as I said earlier, to give their master a return on investment. The stewards in there, the stewards we find in Matthew 25 in that parable, one was entrusted with so many and he gave double, and another was entrusted with so many and he gave double, and one was entrusted with just one talent, and he buried it in the sand. And he said, you're a hard man. And he said, I thought that, you know, you, wouldn't, you, you didn't want me to put this money at risk, so I wanted to give it back to you just as I saw. And he called him a wicked and slothful servant. God takes stewardship very, very, uh, very seriously. And then we notice that the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Timothy, you know, or Titus chapter 1, that pastors are commanded to be uh, blameless as the stewards of God. 
All of us as Christians have been entrusted with what the Bible calls the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God, and we're going to look at some things about the grace of God today, but the manifold grace of God are the gifts that he's given to us. You know, one of the great things about being saved, the moment you got saved, God gave you and gave me a spiritual gift, maybe more than one spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift was given so that you can put it to use and to exercise it in the local church and be a blessing to the church and be helped there. So he talked about being stewards of the manifold grace of God. As we look at this matter of stewardship, we know that it's God's financial plan for the church. The church doesn't go on the outside and goes to the government to secure help. And the church doesn't go out and do all these fundraising ideas and things, though they may be very good for a secular organization. God has a method, and that method and financial plan is found here in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's called tithing. It's called giving. That's how God takes care of his servants. That's how God takes care of his work. That's how the work of God continues on. Last week, last Sunday morning, we looked at 1 Corinthians 16, and we began with the doctrine of giving. On Sunday night, we went to Malachi chapter 3. You may want, if you weren't here Sunday night, you need to go on the podcast to get that message. But we looked at the duty of giving. We saw some things pertaining to the Old Testament Jews and how they were not fulfilling what God wanted them to do. We'll say some about that this morning. But they, they, they talked about the duty of giving. And then tonight, this morning, we're looking at the, the devotion in giving. We're going to see how giving was, again, a magnified and given attention. The spotlight is given by God here in Acts chapter four on a giving church. And so this morning, we want to see the element of great grace at work in our lives as givers, as stewards, as worshipers of God. Notice number one as we study our passage this morning, would you consider the power of God? The Bible begins with telling us about a prayer time, a prayer meeting. Last week, we saw the church which was at Corinth. This morning, we're at the church at Jerusalem. Verse 31 says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. We read a little bit later on, and verse 33 tells us some, uh, some marvelous things that God was doing from that prayer meeting, and the Bible says, great power was upon them. We see the power of God. Listen, this morning, the power of God is divine enablement to do God's work. The power of God is divine enablement to do what God wants us to do. God wants us to serve him in his power and not our power. The power of God is necessary to help us withstand the attacks of Satan. The power of God. It is not nuclear power. It is not hydrogen power. It is not water power. It is God's power that we have. Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I want you to understand there is no power like God's power. God's power is above everything else. God's power is what made the universe. God's power is supernatural power. God's power is a gift of God. The power of God is a game changer in Christian service. The power of God is how churches get started and churches are sustained. 
The power of God is what we need in preaching. The power of God is what we need in witnessing. The power of God is what we need in singing. The power of God is what we need to go on and serve God. The power of God is what we need when we have a trial, when we're diagnosed with cancer, when we're on a hospital bed, when a loved one is taken from us and we're grieved and overcome with sorrow. Beloved, this morning we need the power of God in our lives. Without God's power, we're helpless. <coughs> without God's power, we can do nothing. And without God's power, there's no faith cannot be exercised. Without God's power, we won't see miraculous answers to prayer. Without God's power, we're just like other men, as Samson said. Leading into chapter 4, Peter and John. We're in the temple at the ninth hour of the day. A man that had been lame from birth, he couldn't walk. And we talked about this man a few weeks ago. His legs were emaciated. I imagine many times that that man was not just skin and bones. All he had was a little bone of a leg like this. He had no calf muscle. He had no thigh muscles. He never had an opportunity to build those muscles. This man was emaciated. He was atrophied. He had never known what it was to stand on his feet. And he, and he sat there as he did every single day of his life at a gate called Beautiful. And as he was there, he was begging alms. And they would say something like this, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And Peter and John who came there, they got their eyes on that man and he got some hope. He thought, oh, maybe these two men might have some money to get to me. He said, alms for the poor. And Peter said what every Baptist preacher says, silver and gold have I none. Amen. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And by the power of God, as Peter extended his hand, it wasn't anything in Peter's hand. Peter extended his hand. As he grabbed that man's hand, he stood up. And the Bible says he leaped and he walked with joy. Now that's kind of amazing. For a man who never walked, who barely could never crawl, he, the first thing he did was he leaped up for joy. Hey, when you get Jesus in your heart, you get joy in your heart. Amen. That man became the center of contention there as far as the Jews were concerned. People ran from all over that area of that court called Beautiful. And they assembled on Peter as a preacher of the gospel, saw an opportunity, and he got up. And we read about this in Acts chapter 3. He preached one of the great sermons of the Bible. He preached a salvation message and told those Jews how they crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And there, his blood was on their hands, and they needed to get saved. And in spite of the opposition by the, by the Sanhedrin and by the Pharisees, listen, the Bible tells in Acts chapter 4, 5,000 men plus women and children put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to tell you today, 5,000 men and women getting saved, that's the power of God at work there. And Peter and John were taken aside and they were put on hold. You're not to give any mention about the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John said, we cannot bespeak the things which we've seen and heard. And the high priest said, let me tell you something. You speak nothing about that name. You don't bring that name up again. And Peter and John are censured for preaching the gospel. They're feeling a major setback in their heart. And I'll be real honest with you, though the Bible doesn't tell us that, and though they were cold, I, though, though they were bold, I believe in their hearts they were somewhat intimidated. Because the Bible tells us, we get a little bit earlier there, verse 26, that they went back to their own company. They went back to the church. 
And then went back to the church and gave an account to the church of everything that unfolded and everything that happened that moment in time. And they told the church what was going on. And the church, though it doesn't say that they felt this sense of intimidation and they felt this sense of fear. And they wondered, how are we going to go on? And quite honestly, they feel like a lot of us do when the pastor gets up and says, hey, let's go win some souls for Jesus Christ. They felt intimidated by that. The very first thing the church did, they went to prayer. In verses 25 or 26 to verse 33 or so, we see the prayer of this church. They're praying, and the Bible says great power came upon them. Yesterday, we, as we do every Saturday, we have organized outreach and soul winning. This organized outreach is so for the purpose of mobilizing our church on a volunteer level so people can come and learn how to, get, to tell people about the gospel and tell people how to, how to get saved and how to be moved from darkness to light and from being a child of the devil to the child of God and how to get saved and know that heaven's your home. And we've done that since day one since our church started. And we had a good group of people there. And as my, my, I got to Friday, my, 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 my Saturday started filling up very quickly there. By Saturday night, I had three appointments, three back-to-back appointments that I had. I lined up for people that needed to hear the gospel. I asked them if we could come see them. And so we had some back-to-back appointments yesterday morning. And my wife and I ventured out, went straight to the appointments. And the ta- staff went ahead and led so many here. We had a good group that were here that went out. And went to a home of the man, man by the name of Kwa King. Kwa King is the husband of Mrs. Connie Ng, who got saved in 2070. Marvelous story there. Connie, who was very hearing impaired, had a difficult time in understanding the gospel. And I have a picture of what my wife did. And my, I told my wife there, I said, you know what, this 2017, I said, why don't you write out for her the plan of salvation in Chinese and show her some things. And I still have it on my phone, how she wrote it out. And she explained to her. And then she wrote out to her how the sinner's prayer and how to pray. Marvelously, Connie, who thought she was saved, realized she wasn't saved, though she'd gone to church for many years. And we found out later on, she went to churches that did not preach the gospel. See, so she wasn't saved. And, and there that in her home that Saturday afternoon she bowed her, in fact it was July 16, 2017, she bowed her head and prayed the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus to save her. Connie got into a car accident and never recovered from that and her health, health declined and she had other health complications and January this year we did her home going service there at a funeral home in, in Hayward. Her husband who's been her sweetheart for many, many years has been heartbroken and sad and we gave the gospel there and I'm not sure there was much he understood because English is not his first language. And yesterday, as we went to his home, I rang the doorbell, and we gave him something. Our Chinese department filled out a card and some gifts and wanted to give him. I thought, what a good opportunity. We'll just go back and see this family again. And we rang the doorbell. Mr. Ng opened the door, and he looked at me. He was kind of surprised to see me at the door. His eyes started to water up. He didn't know what to say. And my wife asked him, Mr. Ng, we came by just to give you something from our church. And wondered, can we come in to see you for just a minute? He said, sure, come on in. We went on inside and sat down at the table, and you have to bear in mind, the very first time that he heard the gospel was when we explained it to his wife, Connie. He really didn't want to have anything to do with it. He was very polite to us, but you could tell as he shuffled in and out and did different things. He didn't want to hear the gospel at the time. And yesterday as we sat down, my wife asked him for me how he was feeling, and he wasn't feeling very well, and tears started coming down his face. He's still brokenhearted that he lost his wife. We said, Mr. Ring, we want you to know that, you know, your wife loved you very much, and she loved God very much, and I'm going to tell you, she's in heaven, and she's not suffering. She went to that place where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I said, Mr. Ring, be so wonderful. One day your day's going to come. Be so wonderful. You could have a reunion with your wife up in heaven. 
That man started to cry there, and he started talking about how sad he was. He went into the, we went into the gospel plan of salvation. We explained the gospel. We had him read back the Romans road to us, explained things to us. And listen, within a minutes of time, that man was listening with a very tender, childlike heart. My wife asked him, I'd be Mr. Ian, do you, do you see any reason why you should not get saved today? And he said, no, I want Jesus as my Savior today. Mr. Ian called on Jesus to save him. Game assurance of salvation, spent some time with him, and he'll probably relocate to a different part of the Bay Area to be closer to one of his children there. But we thank God, a man that was hard in towards the gospel, not very receptive. Yesterday, had an open heart to trust Jesus. We went from there, and we went to see a man that I've known for 30 years. This man I've known for 30 years, I've watched his kids grow up, and one of his daughters in our church, and she's married to one of our good men of the church. They have four children in the church, four good children in the church here. And this daughter's been very burdened for her father for many, many years that he gets saved. And I've been on occasions where I've been with this man. He's heard me give the gospel. I've tried to witness to him on different occasions. And he's kind of like a typical Asian father. He's just very, very, just very standoffish. Didn't want to hear it. Many times he'd drop his head, walk away. Didn't want to hear anything about that. Very strong man. He grew up on the streets. Very tough man. A few years ago, I got a call from his daughter. She said, Pastor, I've got an uncle that's, in, that's over in ICU. He's not doing very good. They found him with a brain tumor. I knew this family from years ago. My wife used to be the piano teacher for this man's, for his three of his children. When they were little kids, she taught them piano. We were little kids, and somehow we stayed in touch with that family. I knew, we knew his wife. His wife would always just have a very tough look on her face and really didn't know how to read her a lot of times. She seemed very stoic about things. And, and we heard about this man who was in the hospital and so went there. And, and all he could do was squeeze my hand. He could get the tumor that was in his brain, got control of certain nerves where he had no more use of his vocal cords. He had no ability to ambulate and walk around. He was bed confined. His wife, who loved him, they'd been sweethearts for many, many years, stood right at his side. Went there and visited that man, Mr. Chuck Mock. I visited Chuck and talked to him about the Lord. We spent much time. And I remember that day, I had Pastor, Pastor Jeremy Jin with me. He was visiting with us from China, helping us in our Chinese department. I said, Pastor Jin, I need you to come with me. And I just, I want you there just to pray and just pray that God will give me wisdom what to say to this man. And Mr. Mock, amazingly, he looked away and he looked towards me and we explained the gospel very slowly. And just as we've done many times before, through hand motions, Chuck Mock received Jesus Christ as his Savior. Chuck Mock's brother, Quan, had just walked out the door when I got there. Quan Mock, Blenda, Blenda Lou's father, has been in declining health the last few weeks here. Diagnosed with an ailment that there's really no known cure. With all their advancements in medical science, they don't have anything that can deal with this ailment. Mr. Mock had a bad week this week, and I got a call from Blenda and Dave, and I actually was in, I was in praying for the man. God had put him on my heart on Friday morning. I was praying for him and spent some time praying for him. I had no idea Dave was going to call me. Dave told me about the setback that week. He said, is there any way you can see him the next few days? I said, I'll see him tomorrow. After I saw Mr. Mr. Ng, we went and got down, went down to another city about 20 minutes further down the road, and went over there, and, and listen, talk about a closed door. The, the area is gated, and there's no way I could get in. I dialed Dave. I said, Dave, how am I going to get into the house there? And, and he said, well, listen, there's a nurse here with, with Dad right now. He says, why don't you uh, call the nurse and tell her to open the door? And we heard a sound in the garage door, went up a few minutes later. We went and followed the nurse inside. She said, Mr. Kwan knows that you're coming. He's upstairs. I just brought him lunch. I want you to just do whatever you need to do. And the nurse sat down with us, and I didn't know if she wanted to stay through, and I started, so I prepared myself. I guess I'm going to give the gospel to two people this morning, amen? 
And for whatever reason, she started listening. We started just doing some small talk and talk with him a little bit there. And, and uh, she said, you know, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit touched her on her shoulder. She says, you know, I'm going to go downstairs and make my lunch. I said, that's a great idea, amen. I said, we'll be fine. We'll take good care of Mr. Kwan while you're doing it. He was sitting up eating his lunch there. I said, hey, Mr. Kwan, Mr. Mr. Mock, I said, listen. I said, you know, a few years ago, I had the privilege to lead your brother Chuck to Christ. You were there when I did your brother's service. I explained the gospel, how to be saved. You've heard me tell the gospel many times. I said, this morning, you know why I'm here. I said, Mr. Mock, your, your health condition. I said, you know, I, I, I'm going to pray God's best for you. I'm going to pray that God will raise you up and help you. But listen, we have to face one fact. We're, it's a point of men once to die and after this is a judgment. Let me tell you, a man at 180 degrees on the opposite side who didn't want anything to do with the gospel, his daughter tried to witness to him, family tried to witness to him, tried to get him saved. He wanted nothing to do with the gospel for all those years. Yesterday morning, he said, Pastor Fong, go ahead and explain to me what the gospel is all about. We started explaining to Mr. Quan Mock about Jesus and how Jesus could save his soul that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, I want to tell you about 40 minutes later, Mr. Quan Mock, I asked him the question. I said, Mr. Mock, would you like to receive Jesus, your Savior, have your sins washed away and receive the gift of eternal life? And he looked up at my wife because every time we talked about the gospel, we would look down, didn't want to look up. He looked and says, yes, I think I want to get saved right now. Called on Jesus to save him. Not long after that, I said, do me a favor. Would you call your daughter and tell your daughter that you got saved? Well, my wife had just texted her pictures that she was taking while we were praying. He was asking Jesus to save him. She sent it to her. And her his, just as I said that, and my wife had forwarded the pictures, the phone started going off on his phone. It was his daughter calling. And there at that moment, he said, why don't you answer the phone talk to Blenda? He answered the phone, and Blenda said, Dad, did something happen? She said, he said, yeah, I got Jesus in my heart. I think I'm saved right now. Amen, you know. She said, Dad, I love you. Thank you. You made the best decision you could ever make. Now to explain this, but as a dad who really loved his daughter, he broke down and started weeping right there on the spot that he trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. You said, what was it all about? I want to tell you this morning, it's all about the power of God. Amen. Notice when we look at chapter 4, we see God's power at work. Notice first of all, we see the means of the power of God. The Bible says when they prayed, the place was shaken when they were assembled together. Notice the means by God's power come. God's power comes by God's way. Notice the first thing we see, the first means is by prayer. The church went to prayer. Hey, great things happen when churches pray. We find throughout the book of Acts that this church is praying in Acts chapter 2. We find it praying in Acts chapter chapter 4, we find it praying in Acts chapter 12, we see this church praying again and again and again. I want to tell you, brother and sister in Christ, great things happen when churches pray. This church was praying, and the Bible says as they prayed, God was starting to work there. And the Bible says that the place was shaken where they met. God was at work there. Notice the word for verse 31 for pray. You want to circle that. The word for pray is not the typical word that you find in the Bible, in the New Testament for prayer. The typical word is prosukiomai, which is talking about individual prayer. It's a word called diomai. It's only used 19 times in the New Testament. And the word diomai is a very strong word that means to beg, to intercede, 
to call upon with great urgency. Lawyer, this is like saying, God, we need you. We need something. Listen, this church, which was intimidated by the threats of the, by the, by, by the, by the Jewish high priest and the Sanhedrin, the church, which is in its infancy stage, which was very concerned whether or not its existence would go on, whether or not they could preach the gospel. They had prayed for boldness. They asked God, please, if all the things we need, God, we need boldness to get the job done. They prayed. They begged. That church prayed all all night long and prayed for God to do something. Listen, and God responded. He sent his power to that church. I remind you this morning where there's no power, there's no prayer. Ian Bounds said what the church needs today is not more machinery or better or new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. We see, a, we, see the, we, see the, we see prayer as a means, but we notice we see a person in the means. Notice this person is found in the Holy Ghost. The Bible says, when they prayed, the place was shaken. I like that, amen. Listen, we need some praying that, that right now that would shake us in our hearts and shake us in our souls and help us to realize God is there. There was motion when, when this power came. The Holy Spirit of God was that person. It says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That was the source of power. It was the Holy Ghost who gave it them. There was motion when the power came. The Holy Ghost shook that place. Listen, when it says shaken, it literally means as if a wind blew in there and it shook the very foundation, as if an earthquake happened. Things were moving. There was motion. Listen, when the power of God comes down. There is motion in the church. People get out and serve God. People look in their pocketbooks and they're giving. People get on their knees and pray. There's motion. Listen, this morning we need God's power for motion in our lives today. Job 16, 12 says, I was at ease, but he has broken me asunder. He has also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. There was motion, but there was mission. Notice something else. When the Holy Spirit came on them, the Bible says in verse 31, they spake the word of God with boldness. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 18, be not drunk with wine, where it is sex, but be filled with the Spirit of God. We see the means for the power of God, but quickly, would you notice the magnitude of the power of God? What kind of power? What kind of power? The Bible says in verse, 30, verse 33 to us, it tells us great power. We get our word mega from that. We get our word magna from that. Great power. Stupendous power. Dependable power. Great power. Hey, how many believe this morning we need great power in our lives? Amen. We need great power of God. Listen, and that was not just a phenomenon like some, some commentators said was only in the first century. Listen, that power is still available for those who pray and claim God's power. We see the means for that power, the magnitude of the power. But notice in verses 31 to 33, the manifestation of that power. Notice some things that happened. Verse 31, they spake the word of God with boldness. Notice verse 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you this morning, you might feel shy and you might feel intimidated and you might feel like you're out of your comfort zone if you were to get out and just take a few gospel tracts and to tell somebody about the Lord or give a gospel tract to somebody or even to sit down or to come on a Saturday soul winning or a weekday soul winning to tell somebody about the Lord, invite somebody to church. But I want to tell you, when you spend some time in prayer and ask God for that power, the Bible says of those, those apostles, 
And that church, with great power, they gave witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, that power comes inside and settles us. And that power comes inside and gives us courage. And that power comes inside and gives us enablement. It helps us to do what humanly we cannot do. Listen, if we're trusting in our power, it'll never go on. But with God's power, it's always great power that he gives us there. They gave witness to the resurrection of Christ. But notice something else that was very interesting. Notice verse 32. Verse 32 says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now we see three things here, but quickly what you notice is there was a spirit of selflessness that possessed the church. They got this place. I mean, there's 5,000 plus people that have assembled for this prayer time. And the Bible says they were of one heart and one soul. They were united about one thing. And that united, the unity they had was about the doctrine they believe. And that unity they had was about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, neither said any of them ought of the things which he possessed was his own. You know what they had? They just got the spirit of realizing, you know what? This, this spirit of hoarding, this spirit of selfishness was gone. And they just felt that like they cared for the body of Christ and they cared for one another. The Bible says they had all things common. They, they just had this spirit that, Lord, whatever you've given me is yours anyway. And they just came to this conclusion. God worked in their hearts that there was something God wanted them to obey and do. And so we see this church, the manifestation of great power. Oh, listen, this morning, we're getting ready for our Easter outreach. It's coming up on, on April 20th to 21st. Next Sunday morning, I want you to come prepared. We're going to give you opportunity to think about names of people you're going to write down. And you're going to put on a cross that we're going to pray for and ask God to save and that God will give you enabling to get these people to church. We're going to ask you to be part of teams that will go out and help us to reach people and use your circle of influence, whatever it may be. Some of you might be, some of you students might be in an orchestra or in a band. Some of you parents might be on a PTA. Some of you may belong to some, some next door home group, some neighborhood watch group. Some of you belong to different committees of things. Some of you are on, on, on social organizations of some kind, wherever you might be to use your influence for the glory of God to give invitation ask people to come but listen we've got to do it in God's power we've got to ask that same power that they had to come upon us to work in our lives so God could use us I'm saying this morning as we consider this church we see the power of God notice number two we not only see the power of God but you notice the practice of grace the Bible says in verse 33 and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and this came all by prayer but right after, it tells us something else that touched their lives, and great grace was upon them all. God was working in their lives. Grace in its simplest meaning means love I don't deserve. Grace is the inner working of God in our hearts and helping us to conform to the image of Christ. The Bible says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God working your heart. That's the Holy Spirit of God taking the Word of God and working your heart. It's, that, it's the Spirit of God working to create that, that attitude and that spirit that we want to become more like Jesus Christ is helping us through our times of trials and difficulty. Listen, Paul said, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. Paul later on said, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Peter said, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we can't 
cannot get away from the fact we need the grace of God working in our hearts. And the Bible says at this critical moment when the church was intimidated and fearful, they got great power, but they also had great grace. That grace gave them peace. That grace gave them wisdom. That grace gave them the settlement they needed. Listen, as we study the word grace, we understand that the word grace has a wide application that helps you and me. The Greek, the underlying word for the word grace is the word charis or charis. In some other place of Scripture, we find that the word charis is also translated thanks, thankworthy, acceptable. We saw in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3, we saw last week that Paul used the word liberality to describe the grace of God. Grace is the outflow of God working your heart and mind. It's, the, it's God's love doing what God loves to do best, and that is to give. God, grace is God working your heart and my heart to realizing that that great grace is working, that there's, there's, a, there's an action required of us. There's a practice required of us. It's that outflow that comes out of us that says, I want to give. I want to do something. It's this willingness to help and, and give, let go of whatever I'm holding on to so God can work on us. And notice, if you would, we saw great power in verses 31 to 33. Notice in verses 34 to 37, we see this great grace at work there. Notice we see it's this great grace at work. Notice the disposition position of grace. Neither was there any among them that lacked, but as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and laid them down to the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according to his idea. I mean, what a wonderful passage teaching us the disposition of grace, the attitude and spirit of grace. Notice the attitude that was there. These believers who were, were kind of, you might say, they really weren't part of the same social network. Back in those days, in those early days, as the church was just getting started. The people were getting saved. Predominantly, the people getting saved were, 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 uh, were, were, were slaves, were women, where their husbands were, just didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were Jews who had to pay an incredible price for their faith because by saying they accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, they were acknowledging that he was the Son of God. They acknowledged that, that their sins needed to be paid for in full, and they acknowledged at that point in time that the law was no longer necessary for them to follow through the rituals of religion and ceremonialism and all of those things. Listen, the great sacrifice that needed to be performed was when Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. Those Jews, when they took that stand and accepted Christ as Savior, they made a parting with things. They had relatives that wanted nothing to do with them. The, Sandy, the, 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 the Pharisees and the Jewish faith had wanted nothing to do with them. I mean, they were, they were cast aside on them. It was a very, very tough time socially for them. And yet we see something here. These believers assembled together, thousands of them, and there was a spirit that God put in their hearts of doing something more than just coming to church. And something very amazing, they had the spirit that everyone, listen to this morning, everyone that owned land, owned houses, this is what God spoke them about. Out. Sell what you have, bring it to the church, and let God do something great through that gift. It says possessors of lands and houses. God worked on that heart in such a, on the hearts of those believers in such a miraculous way that believers just felt like, you know what? I want to be a help to those believers that are needing. We're not sure how this is all going to come about. The church in those days was still in its organizational process there. And you have to remember that the Roman government at that time and city governments did not have social programs that we have today. We have very organized social programs that people can apply to to get help like welfare and food stamps and things like that and things to help people who are definitely 
really are in need of something like that. But in those days, they didn't have anything like that. And pretty much their families had to take care of them. But you're looking at a church where families now are despising the faith of those who believe and didn't want to have anything to do with them. And slaves that lost their jobs. And women that were disowned by their husbands. And children wondering, what's this all about? And so they had needs there. And the church looked upon this needy organization of people that was there. And some of them said, you know what? We've got to find a way to take care of this. And it's amazing. The members just stepped up. And they said, well, listen, I've got a house here. And I've got land here. And they sold their asses. And listen, when they sold it, the Bible says they took the entire proceeds, whether they sold it for a gain or they sold it for a loss. They weren't motivated by economic conditions. And they weren't motivated by the fact real estate was going up. And they weren't motivated by the fact that the Roman government would give them a deal. They were motivated by one factor. This is our church, and our church has a need. And they said, we've got to do something about this. And they saw what they had. Notice what the Bible says. They brought the, the, the proceeds of that and laid it at the apostles' feet. That means they gave it to the local church. When I read that and I think about great grace, I thought, wow. Nobody got up and preached a message. There's no precedent in Scripture of someone saying, let's get up and do this. Right after this prayer meeting, the church just had the spirit of giving. All that were possessors of lands sold those things and took the price of the full price. And they brought it to the apostles. An amazing thing is, as we look at this, the, 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 the Holy Spirit tells us here, the distribution was made to every man according to his, as he had need. What that basically means is they didn't take everything and apply to a social program and they gave equal to everybody. The apostles had to ask for wisdom, discernment, and say, okay, well, let's see what the needs are. And people came and they said, well, you know, I do have a need here. Would you help me with this? And they distributed as every man had need. And listen, the finances of the church unfolding. We say, well, what has this got to do with giving in the church Here's what's going on. Here are these Jews coming who are needing to be taught in the Word of God what to do. And uh, these were tithing Jews. They had to bring their tithe three times, three different times to the, uh, they had three different tithes they had to give back in the time of, 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 the, of the Jewish law. And now there's this place where they're no longer worshiping God like they did as Jews. They're worshiping God as a Christian. They're worshiping God under grace. And they're looking, what do we do? And the grace of God working hard, a higher principle than tithing came into place. You see, it didn't absolve them and didn't take away the responsibility of tithing. We still need to tithe. We still need to give. Realize that the first 10% belongs to God. We have to realize that whatever we have, whatever God has entrusted, one-tenth is, is, is God's ownership. And that didn't, that didn't absolve them or take away that responsibility. But a higher principle came to play that in their hearts, right in these opening days of the church, it wasn't a spirit of, okay, let's tithe. It was a spirit of grace. They brought everything, said, Lord, everything I have is yours anyway, and they gave of the abundance of their heart. They gave of their ability to worship and honor God. Man, what a disposition. 2 Corinthians 9 says this, With this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. Not everybody sowed their land and their houses and laid them down. But the Bible says, For as many as were possessors of lands or houses did. These brothers and sisters of Christ were sowing bountifully and reaping bountifully. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. Would you notice this principle? The starting point, the, bare, the baseline minimum as we think about giving is our tithe. The tithe is the Lord's. The tithe is holy unto God. 
It belongs to God. We're to honor the Lord with our substance and with the first fruits of all of our increase. We're to give that back to God. But notice something else. These believers were in this place where God was teaching us a higher principle. We're to purpose in our heart. We're to be praying about the needs. We're to be praying about our involvement. We're to be praying about, Lord, what do you want me to do? Somewhere in this prayer meeting, they were praying about this. And the Bible says, every man according to his purpose in his heart, so let him live, not grudgingly or of necessity, where God loveth the cheerful giver. Now, grudgingly or necessity doesn't mean you sit down with a calculator and you start punching out how much you're going to have left and what you're going to do. You just realize what's in your possession. And you're just trusting God to take care of all your needs. And that's what they were doing. They just realized they had to come with a cheerful heart. And we read verses 34 and 35. This church of believers, those who are possessors of lands or houses, they sold those things. Gave and by the way, when they did that, they didn't have a building program that was going on. And they didn't start a new ministry that required a lot of capitalization. They just realized before the vision was cast and before the, before the work expanded and before even buildings were considered. They just decided that's what God wants us to do. A higher principle came to place where they sow what they have and they just showed from the abundance of heart. Every man is he purpose in his heart. God put in their hearts not just one, not just two, but several. They just did this thing and they came and gave it to the apostles and said, listen, you distribute it as God puts on your heart. You do it according to the glory of God. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now that's where great grace came into play. The Bible says, God, make all grace abound towards you. That great grace was working in the heart of that, of that local church there, and God enabled them to give beyond their ability. What God is telling us as a church in the matter of giving, we're not to be calculating we're to get our hearts to a place where we have a conviction about giving. We have a conviction in our heart that it's the right thing to do. That we realize that tithing is God's method for taking care of church, but not just to tithe. We give over and above that. We give of the abundance of our heart. We consider our ability. Some have great abilities, some have small ability. But the Bible tells in 1 Corinthians 16, let every man lay aside as God is prospering upon the first day of the week. So we see a church here in its disposition was filled with great grace. But notice in verses 36 to 37, we see the demonstration of grace very quickly. The spotlight goes from the church on one man. In verses 36 to 37, we read about a very prominent Christian who had a very important role in the development of the local church. His name was Barnabas. Barnabas is a good name. Barnabas means the son of rest, the son of comfort, the son of consolation. His father's name was Joseph, which means exalted. And Barnabas was an unusual man. He was, he was not from that area. He's from a different area. He's from the island of Cyprus. He was an out-of-town individual. He came there and associated himself with that church. And the Bible tells us something else that's interesting. This man was a Levite. He was a priest of God. He served the priests. He served the men of God. He was a full-time servant of God. Now, as a Levite, if you know your Bible, Levites didn't have any possessions. In fact, the Bible tells us when the land was dispersed and given out in Joshua, the Levites received nothing because God told the Levites, I am your possession. He was telling the Levites, I will take care of you. But as long as the Levites took care of the work of God, and so the Levites were dependent upon God's people to take care of them. But this Levite here, he got saved. And this Levite, he realized he wasn't under law, he was under grace. And being under, being under grace there, he realized now that he had no part to do with the Jewish ceremonies. And so he came and God's work in his heart, this great grace is working in him. And notice what happens here. He comes, the Bible says in verse 37, and having lamb, he sold it and brought the money. That is the entire proceeds. He brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. God put a spotlight on this one 
one man, a man who you would least expect would give abundantly, a man who depended on other people to take care of him, a man who we don't know how he got this piece of land, maybe it was an inheritance, maybe it was a gift, maybe it was what he was looking forward to to take care of in retirement. God touched his heart. He says, you know what? God's going to take care of me. He's taking care of me in the past. He'll take care of me in the future. He took that piece of land he had and he sold it and he gave it to the apostles as well. He didn't put any strings on it. He didn't put any stipulations on it. He didn't say, well, here's how I want you to distribute my money. As some people would say, by the way, that's not biblical. Put a stipulation on your money. You just give it and realize that, that God will take care of that. And he gave it to them. He says, do what God leads on your heart to do. And listen, when, when, when Barnabas did that, that sent waves through the church. I mean, you talk about the place being shaken. That sent waves through the church because here was a man they least expected to give, exercising the spirit of grace. A man that didn't keep himself confined to the law, though he was a Levite. It should have been under the law. He was a man living under grace. And a man said, who out of the abundance of a heart and beyond his ability gave all that he had. He says, listen, I want God to be glorified. And he set himself up as a great demonstration example. I'm saying to you this morning, God needs to raise up some Barnabases in Heritage Baptist Church. We need some Barnabases who have a spirit like him, who realize they will give what they can and do what they can for the glory of God. They're going to give of their ability. They're going to give as a cheerful giver. Notice some things here. This man, he gave a personal sacrifice. This man gave without considering what about his future. He had no reservation or second thoughts. He gave all that he had and he gave his best. The emphasis is giving here that Barnabas was a model of grace giving. Oh, we see the disposition of grace, and we see the demonstration of grace. But notice we see something else. We see the dissimulation of grace. Well, this sent waves throughout the church. Well, and you have a good example. People follow a good example. We go to chapter 5 very quickly. We see a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira. They saw what Barnabas did. They saw how the Holy Spirit gave prominence to Barnabas, though Barnabas did not seek prominence. They may have been standing afar and listening to the conversation as Barnabas brought his gift and he said, listen, I had some land, I sold it, this is the proceeds. And you know, Peter, Peter and John, they kind of had an idea of what real estate prices were like in their area. They knew what he laid down. He gave the entire proceeds there. They blessed him and they said, God bless you for being so cheerful as a giver. God bless you for loving God. And he walked away with joy in his heart because that's the kind of man Barnabas was. And Ananias and Sapphira were looking from afar and they said, well, that's how you get your name in the church. I want to get our name in the church. This man, his wife, Ananias, Sapphira, they were masquerading. They were putting on a charade. That's what dissimulation means. Dissimulation means to put on a mask, to put on a charade, to be hypocritical, to make yourself look like you really are not. And they wanted to impress Peter and the church leadership that they were right behind the work of God. And they wanted to impress the work of God that they were cheerful givers and the grace of God was working in their hearts. And the Bible tells us something about Ananias and Sapphira that is very, very startling about their lives. Notice first on verses 1 and 2, we see their scheme. A certain man, he man, Ananias and Sapphira's wife, sold the possession. That's a good thing. We stopped at verse 1. 
But they sold their possession, but their motive was not to give it as the church was giving. They were not in the spirit of grace giving that moment of time. The Bible says their scheme is found in verse 2. They kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and bought and brought only a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, they, whatever they did, whatever they sold, they conspired in their hearts. They talked between themselves. Hey, let's get our, let's get our names out there too. Let's make a public demonstration that we, we're filled with grace giving. But the Bible says they didn't bring all of it. They kept back a certain part. The only give part of it. Their scheme was to get their name out there. Their name, their scheme was to look like they were part of the grace giving movement, but they were not. They held back part of it. And notice in the scheme, we find in verses 3 to 10, we find their sin revealed. Just as they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I'm certain there was a conversation went on between Ananias and Sapphira with Peter. Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thy own? And after it was sold, was it not in thy own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Listen, we see the scheme, but we see the sin. We see those who try to take advantage of the grace-giving moment for their own benefit and for their own, for their own uh, uh, let's say, for their own prestige, if I could say that. And so they laid it at the apostles' feet, and Peter saw that, and he accuses Ananias because Ananias went by himself without his wife being present. He says, why has Satan filled thy heart? Their thought, their motivation was not of God. It was not of the Holy Spirit of God. Satan tempted them. Satan filled their heart. And listen, when temptation comes, you've got split second to decide you're going to run from that temptation. You're going to close that door or you're going to listen to it and he listened to the voice of the devil tell him why don't you do this why don't you sell your lamb but just give part of it and keep back the rest of it and you'll still get the recognition but peter was savvy to that the holy spirit either spoke to him or the holy spirit gave him discernment in that moment to realize that what was laid at his feet was not the full value let me tell you tonight this morning god knows our heart and god knows whether you're giving or if you're holding back god knows if you're being truthful or if you're cheating and he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? <coughs> now, it's a bad thing to lie to men, but it's a bad thing to lie to God. I read the story about four high school boys who skipped classes one day. Next day, they came to their, their class, and they had the same teacher for several of their classes. They came to the teacher, and they all told, them the, told the teacher the same thing. They said, well, we're sorry we, we missed our class because we, we had a flat tire in our car. And the teacher smiled. She says, okay, well, you know what? You missed a quiz yesterday, but, you know, take your seats and get out a pencil and paper. They all sat at different seats, and they had their pencil and paper. She said, now, each of you tell me which tire had the flat. <laughs> now, listen to me this morning. Do you lie? Are you honest with God? Do you tell God the truth? You know, it's one thing to lie to man. It's one thing to lie to your spouse. Lying to your spouse is bad. It's one thing to lie to your parents, and lying to your parents is bad. It's one thing to lie to your pastor, and lying to your pastor is bad. Listen, it's one thing to lie to man, but listen, to lie to God, that is awful. And Peter is there, and he's looking at this little offering they gave. Why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And notice the next part of verse 3. Would you turn there? And to keep back part of the price of the land. 
He withheld. He held back what he said he'd give to God. In effect, they were doing what Malachi spoke of that we preached on last Sunday night about robbing God. Listen to Malachi 3, verses 8 and 9. If you have it in your notes, look at it, please. Will a man rob God? Do you have the audacity to steal from God? Will a man rob God? But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Listen, Ananias and Sapphira were reliving the very accusation God was giving to Israel before the close of the Old Testament era. He said, will a man rob God? And Ananias and Sapphira were robbing God. They were holding back from God. Now, I can't put my finger on this, but I don't even think that what they gave, they laid down the apostles' feet. I don't even think it equated the tithe at that moment. It was so sparse, whatever they put there. Peter automatically, the spiritual red flags went up. He says, why has Satan filled thy heart to do this thing that was conspiring the heart to keep back part of the price? He said, listen, I'm not very smart, but I know enough about real estate in Jerusalem. What you sold this for and what you lay down here, the two don't match up. Now, let me tell you something this morning. If you're a member of the church, you should be a tithing member of the church. Amen. And every member that's tithing, you ought to say a hearty amen to that because you're carrying the load when some have got good jobs and making good living and they're doing all those things. But as a member of the church, you agreed when you got on board there that you'd be a tithe of the church. If you're not tithing, the Bible says you are cursed with a curse. That's the Bible. That's not Alan Fong. <coughs> we see their scheme. We see their sin. But you notice in verses 5 and 6, we see their sentence. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down. I want you to understand right now, God is meeting with them. We see the first church discipline in the local church. We see lying to God is bad, but notice the first church discipline. And Ananias, hearing these things, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young man arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. Notice in verse 6, we see what the ushers are supposed to be doing in church. Amen. Notice verse 9, we see in verse 5 and 6, that's Ananias. He just fell down and gave up the ghost. Verse 9, his wife comes back three hours later. She's probably shopping at Walmart somewhere, amen, you know. She had no idea what happened to her husband there. She comes back, notice verse 9, and Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Now, he accused her of the same thing that her husband did. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. And then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. <coughs> now, if you read 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, it talks about the sin unto death. This is the sin unto death. 1 Corinthians 5 speaks about church discipline. This is a form of church discipline that God exercised. We see the dissimulation. You can fake it, but God knows. You can fill out a pledge card, but if you don't keep what you say on the pledge card, God knows. You can be a member on the roll of Heritage Baptist Church, but if you're not a tithing member, you're not honoring God with your substance, first fruits of all your increase, God knows. You see the practice of grace. You see the power of God as we close this morning. Would you notice one more thing? Would you notice the purifying for growth? These first 10 verses of Acts 5 are very sobering. These church members are exposed and disciplined for lying and cheating God. And notice we read in verse 11, 
great fear came upon all the church. And as many as heard these things, watch this now. We began with the power of God. Now watch this, where God's power works and the practice of grace arises, Satan is still at work. Satan whispers in our ear. We give him a moment, just we give him an inch and he takes a foot and Satan will fill our heart with the same temptation to do something that's not right. The Bible says as they learned that this man Ananias was taken out and his wife Sapphira was taken out. Listen, you could, listen, the, the word spread all over Jerusalem about what happened there. And the Bible says in verse 11, great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. What a moment. God not only was concerned about them seeing power, and God was only concerned about them seeing grace. God wanted to purify and purge the church. Listen, purging of the church and purifying the church is God's business, God's way. We see great fear. And all I'm going to say this morning is that we need to have this attitude that there's great fear in our hearts. We need God-fearing people. We need people that fear God's word and fear God's spirit and fear the judgment of God and fear the fact that we are going to stand before God one day to give account of our work. And by the way, if this morning you're here and you're not safe, you're not sure you're going to heaven, you need to fear the fact that he is a living God and he's a God that will judge you for your sin and if listen if you don't if you don't call on Jesus to save you from your sins like Mr. Ng and Mr. Mr. Mog did yesterday listen you'll stand before God and he'll cast you into a place called the lake of fire great fear came on all the church but notice something else that happened for the church look at verse 14 the church was shaken in its foundations by the power of God. The church was shaken in its heart by this great fear that God gave. But notice verse 14, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. This is purifying for growth. More addition, people added, God added more people to the church. Lafayette was a French officer who provided incredible assistance to George Washington during the, civil, during, during the uh, American Revolution. The war was over, America was victorious, Lafayette went back to France, resumed his responsibilities of a farmer of many lands and many estates. The record tells us in France in 1783, the harvest was terrible. Many farmers suffered that year, they didn't have much of a crop. Amazingly, Lafayette's estates flourished. His crops were abundant. His harvest was good. And one of his helpers said, Lafayette, yeah, everybody here is suffering, but you've been blessed. Your state is doing very well. We have an abundant harvest, probably the best harvest we've ever had. Listen, I've got wind that the, the, the things that are on the marketplace, prices are going up. Because of scarcity, price is going. He said, you know, Lafayette, I think now is the time to sell. Lafayette, thinking about the plight of all the farmers around him and people of the people of France who were suffering. He said, no, it's not a time to sell. It's a time to give. And I close this morning. It's a time to give. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken death and running over shall men give unto your bosoms. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let me remind you this morning, it's not a time for you to hold back. It's not a time for you to enjoy yourself. It's a time to give. And may I remind you today, there was someone who gave something beyond whatever you and I could give. That someone was Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago and he gave his life for your sins and mine. 
Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God looked down from heaven at our sinful plight. He looked at us and good works can't save us and religion can't save us and anything we do cannot save us. Not of works as any man should boast. And at the right time, aren't you glad, and the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them. At the right time, Jesus came. At the right time, Jesus carried that cross. At the right time, he was crucified on that cross and died for your sins and mine. May I remind you this morning, Jesus didn't give a peace. He gave it all. Every drop of blood that flowed out of his veins was the blood of Jesus Christ. It was a payment price for your sins and mine. And thank God that Jesus gave it all, though he was buried in the tomb, and the demons of hell were rejoicing, thinking they had killed the Son of God. They thought they had killed God and did away with that. And they watched as the, the stone was closing up that cavern, and all the, those who were against Jesus and death, they were kind of rejoicing. They thought they did away with him. But beloved, I remind you, three days later, he arose from the dead. Amen. That stone was rolled away, and Jesus came forth, and that angel said, you're looking for Jesus. Now he isn't here. Thank God he's not in the tomb. He He's alive and he's arisen today. And he offers to you and I the gift of eternal life. If you just would call upon the name of the Lord to save you today. Jesus wants to save you. He gave so that you can have eternal life. I pray this morning you get saved. I pray this morning that you let the practice of grace flow in your heart. And you let God get a hold of you through grace and the power of God to live for God and be a witness for him. But more importantly this morning, to be on board with God's giving plan, God's financial plan for the local church.